Hello and welcome to the Patent Pending Made Simple podcast. I'm your host, Summer Shaw, and with me is Jamie Brophy. Jamie, how are you? Hi, Summer. I'm good. How are you? I am doing all right. Are you almost ready for Thanksgiving? Yeah, getting there. We've got a bunch of house guests coming, so uh, yeah, it's exciting. How about you? Yes. Um, yeah, my parents are coming in town, which is nice, so um, it's good to good to be able to hang out with them. All right. Hopefully we'll release this episode before Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, if we do, happy Thanksgiving to all the listeners. I'm sure we'll get it out before then. Awesome. Um, yeah, I am um, looking forward to taking some time off. And uh, my my Thanksgiving, I think, hopefully will be low-key uh, relative to yours. Uh, we only have two house guests this time. Nice. Yeah, we'll have a house full. I'm going to have 14 people for dinner. <laughs> Oh, wow. Good. Yeah, I know. Thank you. Sounds, well, yeah. Like a lot of cooking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, um, today's topic is diving into the world of provisionals a little bit more. I know we've talked about it on many of the past episodes, but many of the listeners who are listening to this podcast are maybe thinking about writing their own provisional patent application, or they've hired an attorney to write the provisional application. And I'm sure they're wondering, what are some of the mistakes that I can make or you can make in that patent application? Or what are some of the mistakes they should avoid and wh why? Uh, so, Jamie, do you think we can talk about that today? Yeah, I think this is a great topic. I mean, as we've talked about, I think, in previous episodes, I think the provisional is, you know, a helpful first step in the patent journey. And, yeah, there are some things you some things you want to avoid and some things you want to make sure that you include in your application. So, yeah, I think this will be a really helpful topic. Okay, very good. So I'll kick us off here in terms of the first mistake or maybe in my opinion, maybe the biggest mistake that somebody can make is insufficient disclosure. So maybe we should step back and talk about what the provisional is and the job that it performs. And, you know, in technical terms or maybe legal terms, a provisional is a placeholder application. It says that I invented this on this filing date because we in the U.S. are in a first-to-file system. So whoever files a patent on something, they are considered to have invented it on the date of the filing. So you want to essentially establish a record that you invented something and place it in the record database of the patent office with a provisional application. And, you know, you want to describe the invention in as much detail as possible. For one, you one, need to meet the enablement requirement, which says that you have disclosed the invention in enough detail to enable a person of ordinary skill in the art to make the invention based by just reading your disclosure documents. And two, you want to cover enough ground, right? So you don't want to just describe one aspect of your invention and then somebody else can come in and invent a different part of it or practice a different part of it without potentially infringing on your patent. Yeah, I think I've covered a bunch of different kind of bases here, but Jamie, the big one is you want to describe your invention in enough detail so that you can meet the legal requirements of enablement. You can establish your priority day with the patent office and you can create an effective envelope of protection around your invention. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think one of the issues, though, with a provisional application is sometimes people are still inventing or still, you know, working on the best way to make or use their invention. So, 
you know, in that case, I think it's the best practice is just to describe it in sufficient detail, the manner that you think that you think you're going to be making it or maybe alternative ways of making it. And you might land on on one of those eventually. So, yeah, I think just describing it in enough detail that, like you said, a person of ordinary skill in the art would be able to read that application and be able to make the invention just through reading your application. But yeah, it's you. even if you don't know the best mode yet, you just do your best and describe what you think the best mode is and maybe some alternative ways of doing it as well. Yeah, I think that's right. It is tricky because everyone, you know, I, I don't know if any inventor who's, you know, finished with their inventing process, right? Every every invention is like a continuing work in many ways. So it it is hard to kind of say, okay, I am I've reached enough of a spot to stop and, you know, be able to write it down, you know, and I think this is where I think a little bit of time and effort in terms of thinking through your invention is helpful. So we do this and and a lot of patent attorneys I'm sure do this. And you know, in the in the patent pending made simple software, I we kind of get people to do this as well, which is just think about your invention in multiple layers of abstraction as I like to call them. So you want to write down everything you have done for sure, right? Because that's important. You've done the work, you might as well protect it and write it down. And then I would like to think about, you know, what is a broader way of saying the same thing, right? So let's say you invented something with a Velcro system on it, right? Then there are other ways of doing this would be like a magnetic clasp or a button system or something like that, right? So there are other ways of accomplishing the same goal. So you want to think about those and lay them all on on the table, for example, and and then think of a term, an umbrella term that covers all of these different ways of accomplishing the same thing. So I would call that an attachment mechanism, right? That's an umbrella term. And then I would try to, you know, broadly cover all attachment mechanisms. And then I would give examples of the ones that I can think of uh, to give myself more concrete protection. And then, you know, your best mode, as you mentioned it, Jamie, would be the the Velcro or the hook, hook, hook and loop closure system. So that way, now you have gone through a couple of or two or three different layers of protection, and now you have significantly expanded the scope of coverage. So now if you come up with a new way of closing that thing, you, you'd still be covered theoretically or hopefully under the broader umbrella term called the attachment mechanism. So if that made a lot of sense, but that's kind of how, I, how, how I'd want to tackle that. Yeah, I think that's definitely a good good plan. That's a good way to do it. So yeah, you want to make sure that you have sufficient disclosure of your invention and what you think, you know, the best mode of practicing it is going to be sufficient detail, describing alternative embodiments. I think those are all good, good things to have in your provisional application. So what are some other pitfalls that um, inventors might come across when drafting their provisional applications? Yeah, the other thing that you want to avoid using is what I call patent profanity. And um, I, you know, this is the term that we used to use at my old law firm. So I don't know if this is a term of art, but there are words that is going to significantly limit the scope of the invention potentially down the road and come and bite you later. So you want to avoid profanity. And I don't have a comprehensive list in front of me or anything like that, Jamie. But 
words that cannot be interpreted differently are, are when you usually consider those patent profanities. So if you say something like a critical piece of the invention is this, right? Or a special uh, way of doing this or a particular way or a peculiar way of doing this is described in here, or this is how my invention works and why it's superior to something else that's out there. All of those, there's only one way to interpret that, which is that that is unique and required for your patent application. So if you later want to say that, well, this way is not particularly claimed in my claims, uh, it'd be very hard for you to walk away from that interpretation. So you want to avoid words that are hyperbolic or in that vein of being superior or better or particular or critical, stuff like that. Yeah, critical. That one makes me cringe a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or necessary. I see that. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. clients will send us documents that they've written themselves and i'm like well you know if you write that then you are stuck with that forever and ever even if your invention changes later right yeah so yeah definitely avoid avoid some of those things um but at the same time you definitely want to distinguish your invention over the prior art you know maybe identify some particular features that the prior art doesn't teach and make sure that you've described those specific features in enough detail, you know, describe them in different ways, um, things like that. What do you think are some other ways to distinguish your invention over the prior art summer? Yeah, the framing that I like a lot is to just describe the problem, right? Imagine you are an inventor who is who saw the problem, right, that your invention solves but has not solved the problem yet, right? So what are all the things, what are the different aspects of the problem that you saw? Describe those. And you want to put them in the background section of the patent document. And the way that you want to frame it is that somebody should be able to read that section and be like, huh, that's a really tough problem. No way how somebody's going to solve that, right? That's how I'd want to frame it. Because a lot of times, and even I see attorneys do this a lot, where they will write the problems up and then they will say, well, what is needed is a way to do X, Y, and Z, which is exactly what the invention does. And I'm like, well, you know, you're kind of foreshadowing your invention at this point. And, you know, does that make your invention a little bit more obvious, right? Um, like it, it seems to suggest that like all these problems kind of culminated into the creation of the invention. It, would, it seems a very obvious solution at that point. So you don't want to do it that way. What I like to do is just describe the problem Describe how your, you know, prior art products or competing products, how they are suboptimal or inferior in some way, or they don't solve the problems the right way. And just leave the impression with the reader that, hey, this is a tough problem. Right? Like, it's going to be like, I don't know how somebody's going to solve that. It's kind of the impression that I want to leave with somebody after they end up reading my background section. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to do it. Yeah, that's what I try to do in my background sections and I think that's a good um strategy to follow. Yeah, you're kind of in a way in the background section telling a story of kind of how you arrived at your invention without talking about your invention yet. Yeah, it's a little tough to do, but with some practice I think it's it's a good storytelling tool or aid. 
Yeah. You know, keep in mind the audience that's going to be reading your patent application, which we've discussed in um, other episodes. So what else do you think that cover? Well, I think that covers content mistakes, distinguishing your art, your invention over the prior art. Um, what are some other problems that you've seen in provisional applications? Yeah, the other big thing, I mean, maybe I would label these as procedural mistakes. And I guess, Jamie, before I get to the procedural mistakes, are there any other kind of content-related mistakes you see? Nothing that I... I think we've covered everything. I can't think of anything else, Summer. Can you? Yeah. No, I think that's it. I know you talked about the best mode. It used to be that you had to specifically call out the best mode of executing your invention, but that is no longer a requirement. So you just need to describe the best mode, uh, but you don't need to you know, call it out as the best mode. Right. Yeah. Make sure it's in there. And you might not even know yet what the best mode is, but if you described enough different modes, one of them will be the best mode <laughs> as you're yeah. as you're developing your invention. Yeah. It's best mode to you as you know it, right? Um, but yeah. That's why I think having the process of starting with describing your invention as you have it first is a really important because it hits a lot of the beats, right? You, it meets the best mode requirement. It meets the enablement requirement. It helps you be concrete enough in your disclosure. So it's not considered an abstract idea. So it meets a lot of the requirements. And then you can, you know, expand the envelope of protection around that core idea. The other mistake I see even attorneys make is they start with the broadest interpretation of the invention, and then they slowly narrow into what is the concrete invention. And I think that conceptually sounds like the same thing. It leads to errors, in my opinion, because when you start broad and you narrow in, I think the risk of you missing a critical piece of information for enablement purposes and things like that is much greater. So I much rather start narrow and then broaden out rather than broaden out and then go narrow. Yes, I think that's a great, another great strategy. Yeah. Anything else you can think of, Summer? Um, let's see. No, I think that's it. I mean, those are the big ones. Maybe, maybe there are a lot more <laughs> we can spend the rest <laughs> of our day talking about it. But I think if you, if you avoid these things, you're in pretty good shape, generally speaking. Yeah. I think, you know, one other minor thing that's worth mentioning is making sure that your figures are correctly labeled and that you're consistently using the reference numbers. Um, you know, for example, you can't use the same reference number in your application to describe two different things, you know, even if they're in different figures. And make sure that you're kind of using sort of consistent terminology to when you when you label when you give something in your figures a name, like make sure you're consistently kind of using that name. Um, you can offer, you know, other alternative ways of describing it, but make sure you're being consistent with things like that. But yeah, I mean I think that kind of covers it. Is there anything else? No, I think I think that's a good one too. Yeah, I think that's it. I think those are the big ones. Yeah, I guess maybe the last set of things, I would call them procedural mistakes, but I, I get calls, believe it or not, from pro se inventors who are like, hey, I filed my application and now it's got all sorts of informality uh, rejections and the patent office won't give me a, a filing date because I didn't meet all the requirements. So I would say, you know, we have some resources on our website um, and we can certainly uh, link them here in the show notes, but there's also our episode on the patent office resources, right? So the call the, call the patent office, they have a pro se assistance center 
and ask them, you know, like, what do I need to put in my, in my, you know, filing papers? And, you know, what are some things that I definitely cannot leave blank in those forms? There are a lot of values. Many of them are blank. So it's easy to miss something if you're, if you're not used to it or if you don't know what you're doing. But call them, ask them for help. Uh, they're usually very helpful. You want to, you, you'd hate to not get a filing date just because you, you didn't fill out a box in a 20 page form or something like that. Yes, another great another great tip. Yeah, I think I think that covers everything, Summer. Um, well, I mean, you know, the major things that we've mm-hmm. seen for inventors to avoid when writing their provisional applications or to make sure that they include when writing their provisional applications. I can't think of anything else. So unless you have something to add, I think that covers it for this episode. Yeah, I think so too. I think if you avoid these mistakes, you're more than well on your way. So yeah, I think this is a good summary or encapsulation of the of the biggest problems. Yes, absolutely. Okay, Summer, well, happy Thanksgiving, and I will talk to you next time. Yes, happy Thanksgiving to you as well, and yes, we'll see you on the next one. All right, bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Patent Pending Made Simple podcast. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, view the show notes, or access a direct link to any resource, go to the episodes page on patentpendingmadesimple.com. To help others find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Patent Pending Made Simple. This podcast has been hosted by Outlier Patent Attorneys and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, or any listener for any reason. The content of this podcast should not be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.